Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12 today. I've entitled the sermon, The Battle of Armageddon. What does that bring to your mind? Well, it's a battle, and it's at a particular place called Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. It's coming. It's still in the future. It's going to be a great battle. The outcome is already determined. Jesus is the victor. Christians are the victors. And Israel will be the victor on that great day. But you know, the Battle of Armageddon is just the culmination of the last seven years of world history. In Daniel chapter 9, God told Daniel that there were 70 sevens, 490 years determined for your people, that is, for the people of Israel. It's one of the reasons why I believe the rapture will take place before that tribulation period. Because that seven years is for Israel, not for the church. After the 483 years, it said, Messiah the Prince is cut off, and that's exactly what happened. Lord Jesus Christ was put to death, rejected by his people. But there's still seven years left. And it talked about there in the last verse of Daniel 9 how there would be a world ruler, a prince that is coming. He's of the people who destroyed the nation and destroyed the temple, and that was the Romans. So out of some sort of revived Roman Empire, there will be a a leader who rules, who Satan will take control of, whom we call the Antichrist, who we talked about last week. And he's going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. He's going to make a covenant with them, a covenant of peace. And Israel's going to be so happy. And as we saw last week, this is the foolish shepherd. This is the worthless shepherd that they're going to accept. You say, how could they reject their own Messiah and accept this? Well, they rejected their own Messiah and accepted Barabbas. Think about it. In the future, they're going to sign this peace treaty they're so longing for. And by the way, in our day, don't you see the rise of anti-Semitism just amaze you? It's just everywhere. It shouldn't be, but it is, because Satan is at work. And the days are coming to a close when Jesus is going to return. It's something that we should be looking forward to and be preparing for individually as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that, during that seven-year period, it says that in the middle of it, after three and a half years, this Antichrist is going to break this covenant of peace. And he's going to come into the very temple of God, so that's going to be rebuilt. And he's going to commit what is called the abomination of desolation which there was one back in the time of the Maccabees. But it's going to happen again. This Antichrist is going to set himself up and proclaim himself to be God in the temple of God. And then we see the 
final judgments of the book of Revelation coming upon the world, especially during those last three and a half years of judgment before Jesus returns. And at the very end, all the nations of the world are going to be gathered together to fight against Israel. Various places it talks about this. We'll look at them a little later. And Jesus is going to return. He's going to empower Israel and he's going to defeat the enemy. And that's what this chapter is all about. In fact, the last three chapters of Zechariah, someone has, has described as a major eschatological study. There are so many different aspects of what is yet to come that we're going to see in these three chapters. It starts off with the words, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now we saw that most of the first eight chapters of Zechariah were historical, and then in chapter 9 to 14, you go back to chapter 9, verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and its resting place. So Zechariah is prophesying about these future things, and there's these two burdens, the one of 9 through 11, and now verses 12 to 14, chapter 12 to 14, the burden of the word of the Lord. Or some translations you might have, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. It's a word that speaks of a sobering heaviness of God's judgment that is to come. But it also is the future of the weighty glory of Israel's salvation. Chapters 9 through 11 primarily focused on Gentile nations. Although there was much also about the first coming of the Lord. His humble entry on the donkey, his rejection for the 30 pieces of silver. But these last three chapters are going to especially focus on Israel. And uh, we're going to be doing, Lord willing, chapter 12 and 13 before uh, our brother Rob Wertheim comes and gives us an update about what's going on in Israel. Probably be really related. But what we're going to see here is there's going to be a world confederacy that arises against Israel. Then there's going to be a stunning victory. Israel, victorious through the power of their Messiah. The glorious appearing of their Messiah coming. And then the spiritual transformation, as we read about, they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and they're going to mourn. That's the point where Romans 11:26 will be fulfilled. All Israel will be saved. All that's left at that time. Now, a couple things just to note before we get into the passage. It keeps saying, on that day, on that day, on that day, on that day. In fact, through these three chapters, it appears 17 times. This is part of the day of the Lord, the time when God's going to judge the world and set up his earthly kingdom. I also want you to notice that God is speaking through all this. And God says, I am doing this. Look at verse 2. I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic. And later on, I'll keep my eyes open. Verse 6. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. Verse 7, and the Lord will give salvation 
to the tents of Judah first. Verse 8, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 9, I will seek to destroy all the nations. Verse 10, I will pour out. God is busy. God is active in all of this. Do you see? You got to see that, right? That's very clear. Also, this is about Israel. It just keeps talking about Jerusalem and Judah, Jerusalem and Judah, Jerusalem and Judah. Almost every verse speaks about them. So then as we look at this passage, the first nine verses that are going to be this battle of Armageddon where God is going to physically deliver Israel. And then the last verses through verse 14 are going to be the spiritual transformation of Israel. So we start at verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord. Who's speaking? Yahweh, the Lord. He's speaking. He's making a declaration. And just in case you forgot who he is, he describes himself. Look at that. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens. What does it say in uh, Psalm 19.1? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. He stretched them out like a tent. It's interesting. It's going to say he also founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5 it says, Thus says God the Lord, that is Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. This is exactly the, almost the same thing as it's talking about here. So, this is the Lord who stretched out the heavens. Second, he founded the earth. What does that mean? He founded the earth. When God appeared to Job... In Job 38, verses 4 to 6, he said, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Well, we don't know that, do we? God did it, though. And then the third thing here in, in verse 1 says that he's the one who formed the spirit of man within him. Takes us back to Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. This is the God who is speaking. Okay, Now you know for sure who is talking. Now in verses 2 to 9, he tells what he's going to do. Now the background here, the end of the tribulation period, the armies of the world are gathered against Israel. They're fighting against Israel. Uh, there's warfare going on. Uh, you can trace some of it at the end of uh, uh, Daniel 11. And the uh, Antichrist is waging war back and forth with some of the others, but their main focus is going to be on Jerusalem. And so God starts here in verse 2 and says, Behold! You know, pay attention to this. This is something startling. Something to take a good look at. And God begins to describe what's going to take place at the Battle of Armageddon. He says, 
I am about to make Jerusalem. And he's sovereignly going to do this. It's going to be judgment on the nations. It's going to also be salvation for Israel. He's going to do two things to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Here it is. I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Oh, wow. What is that? Cup of staggering? It sounds like uh, the nations are going to drink from a cup. And they're going to stagger as a result. And what is this talking about? It's talking about Jerusalem. Now, what kind of cup is this, first of all? It's not a little tin cup. The word cup here means a large basin from which many can drink. One writer said, in this future global assault, the nations are going to target Jerusalem. They're going to view it as a large and inviting cup from which they can indulge their thirst for all the wrong things. Instead, they're going to drink deeply of God's wrath and they're going to stagger as if in a drunken stupor, unable to defend themselves. It's interesting in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 17, 23, the cup of wrath was first given to Israel. And at the end of that section, it's taken away from them and given to the nations of the world. God's going to deliver Jerusalem. He's going to deliver all Israel. He's going to make the people who come against him be staggering. He says the siege of Jerusalem will also be against all of Judah. Then we come to verse 3. And the second thing, he's going to make Jerusalem. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Jerusalem is made a heavy stone. They're coming to attack Jerusalem. They're trying to take Jerusalem. And God says, I make it like a heavy stone. This was actually, the stone referred here is, is sort of like a weightlifting stone. Have you ever seen any of those? Uh, I don't think it's in America, but in other nations, they have these huge stones, and these guys are trying to lift these big stones. And some of them, they, they lift these stones, and they try to throw it over the back of their head over some like a high jumper, you know, over a thing. And sometimes they make it and sometimes they don't. It's so hard, so heavy. And sometimes there's uh, people who aren't so big or who aren't so strong and try to lift that and, oh, they don't feel so good afterwards. God says, I'm making Jerusalem a heavy stone and people are going to try and attack it and lift it and they're going to get hurt. It's a, it's a cumbersome, crushing weight. It speaks of God's mighty power, which is going to crush the enemy. And all who try to lift it are surely going to hurt themselves. They're going to be severely injured. They're going to be torn. Someone said they're going to get a hernia. <laughs> Maybe so. This is the judgment coming upon them. They're going to stagger, and they're going to try and lift this weight, and it's going to hurt them. And remember... God says, I am doing this. It says, all the nations of the earth are going to gather against it, against Israel. A global force from every direction. They're going to be coming from the west out of the revived Roman Empire. That's Daniel 7. They're going to be coming from the north, Ezekiel 38, probably Russia and others. Talks about a bear there in Daniel 7. From the south in Daniel 11 and from the east in Daniel 11. In fact, out of the east, it says in Revelation 9.16, 
that there's going to be a 200 million man army coming to attack Israel. I can't count that high. But I've been told that there's already 200 million man armies in the world, in China. It says in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12 that God is going to dry up the Euphrates River so that they can march across. How many of you have seen in the news recently that the Euphrates is already starting to dry up? Anybody see that? <laughs> Amazing. When I think of the Euphrates, I think of a big river. But it's going to dry up and these armies are going to come. Satan is gathering the armies to attack Jerusalem. But in, the sen in another sense, God is gathering the armies to bring them to destruction. This is what he's going to do. Then we go to verses 4 and 5. It says, on that day, here again, on that day. Uh, still, it's God's plan to defeat the enemies and to get Judah to recognize that the Lord is the one who's strengthening them for this battle. And so we see in verses 4 and 5, it says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and his riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I'll keep my eyes open when I strike every horse other people's with blindness. Now, do you think there's going to be horses there? Well, there may be. Or it might be just talking about the strength of warfare. Who knows? It could be a picture of the strength of armies, because that's what it was in those days. It was the horses and the riders. But God's going to strike them with panic and with madness. He's going to disable the enemy. God is the actor again, you see. If it's modern technology, God can disable it. The riders or perhaps soldiers, they're going to be disoriented. The weapons of war are going to fail these armies who have come against Israel. The soldiers are going to act irrationally. It'll be self-destructive chaos. Say, how could that happen? Well, have you ever read your Bible? Has it ever happened before? Remember the time of Gideon? What kind of a fool was Gideon? 300 men against, what, 100,000? You want to be the leader of that? He wasn't. God was. And God gave him the victory. And all they did was make a lot of noise and break their, their pitchers and have this light and blow their trumpet and, and all the enemies started fighting and killing each other. Amazing. Well, we might think of uh, some other times. Time of uh, Elisha. Remember, they were surrounded. The city was surrounded. They were... They were on the verge of giving up. And Elisha said, tomorrow, deliverance. Remember the four lepers that went out and found the food and found everybody had fled? Why? Because the Syrians just started fighting against each other and they heard, heard things and they flew away. Or the time of Jehoshaphat. The army comes against him. He cries out to God and God says, I'll give the victory. And what happens? God sends out the angel and he kills, what is it? 185,000 in one night. 
God can turn armies into panic. They'll hear things that aren't, but are, because God made them hear it. And they flee, or they fight against each other. Yes, God is going to be working at the same time. He's going to be watching over. He's going to be caring for the clans of Judah. Judah is surrounded by the enemies, but God is in the midst of her, fighting for her, protecting her, and they're going to acknowledge that it is God who is helping them. It does seem, in a sense here, that God is also using the people and empowering them, and yet God gets all the glory. Look at verse 5. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So they're acknowledging where the strength comes from. Their strength comes from the Lord. We continue on verses 6 and 7. It says, on that day, again, here it is again. And God says, I will make, again, God is busy, God is active. He says, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right, to the left, all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Before, he's making Jerusalem, right? Like a staggering cup, like a heavy stone. Now what's he doing with Judah? He says, I'm making them like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. Woo! Can you see a flaming torch touching a bunch of sheaves? What's going to happen? They're going to get burned up quickly. Great conflagration. God here moves from Jerusalem to Judah and says it's going to be a blazing pot. The pot and the torch are going to devour to the right and to the left all the peoples. God, send, God can send fire from heaven, can't he? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Or remember even Israel when the 250 men were consumed, when they were offering up their censers wrongly? How many people are going to die? Well, according to Ezekiel 39, 12, if this is the same period, it's just going to take the Israelites seven months just to bury all the dead. Such an ignition of flame describes what the warriors of Judah are going to do to their enemies. And at the same time, Jerusalem is protected. By the way, you ever notice there's always been a Jerusalem? going back to the very early part of, it, of Genesis. And by the way, it's still in the same place. You can still go there. You can still see it. You know, you go over to the Holy Land and you say, well, this was the first site of this city. Here's the later site of this city. We even saw that with uh, Tyre. It was here and then it moved out there. Jerusalem's never moved. Jerusalem shall not be moved. It says, Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place, in Jerusalem. People are going to be living there. Then we come to verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glories of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitant of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. That's interesting. God doesn't want Jerusalem and the house of David to think that they're better than all the rest of the common people. So it goes back to the tents of Judah first, and God says, I'm going to deliver them first. I'm going to take care of them. I don't want the leadership in Jerusalem and Judah to think that they're better than, or in David's house, to think they're better than everybody else. 
Well, we've got to continue quickly here. Verses 8 and 9, it says, On that day again, the Lord will protect. Here, the Lord is doing it again. He's going to protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen to this. So that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. The house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Wow. Not only is he going to protect Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. By the way, the idea of protection here is the idea of a big shield. God is shielding them. Same idea was there with Hezekiah's day. They were protected. But he's also going to empower the people. And so the feeblest, the weakest, the most cowardly on that day are going to be like David. Now, who's David? David was their greatest warrior. When you think of who's the greatest warrior in Israel's history, David. Why, he conquered Goliath and, and Saul killed his thousands. But David, his ten thousands. So he was the greatest, mightiest one. And so the weakest are going to be like David. But then it says the house of David is going to be like God. That is like the angel of the Lord. Because the angel of the Lord is going before them and strengthening them. You say, wow, how can they be like God? Well, Moses was like God to Aaron. Remember that? I'm going to make you like God to Aaron. So when Moses spoke, it was like God was speaking to Aaron, telling him what to do. And this will be like the angel of the Lord, their Messiah, God in human flesh. This is what they'll be like. And on that day, verse 9 again, I will, still active, I will. The Lord is going to seek to destroy all the nations. You see, it's during that battle of Armageddon that Jesus returns, Revelation 19, and brings an end to all of it. Well, that's a wonderful physical deliverance for Israel. But something more is necessary. And so we look at verses 10 through 14, and we see Israel's spiritual transformation. Look at this, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Can you imagine what the people in Zechariah's day were thinking when they read that? Zechariah, what are you talking about? Who's going to pierce the Messiah? It was going to happen, and it did happen. It happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I and I will pour out. Again, he's active. God is the initiator. He's the accomplisher. He's the author and the finisher. The author and the perfecter. He who began a good work will complete it. That's the work of God. God pursues sinners. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He draws them to himself. He regenerates them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. But he made us alive. Praise be to God. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. 
He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Pour out. Somebody noted God always pours out. He doesn't sprinkle. Interesting thought. The word means to drench or to flood. God's grace is going to be poured out in such a great measure upon Israel that they're all going to be saved. They're going to be completely saturated with the Spirit's presence and ministry. This is foretold in Ezekiel 39, 28 and 29. This is foretold in Joel 2, 28. It's going to be poured out on the house of David, which is the royal line. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's all the common people. And it's a spirit of grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. The same way they're going to be saved in that day. God's kindness, his unmerited favor that regenerates hearts. And a spirit of pleas for mercy or supplication. That'll be their response. Asking for mercy from God. By the way, the grace and the pleas for mercy, they're related words. They're very close together in meaning. Now notice what it says. Why does God do this? So that... Always check out these words when you see them. So that, that means a purpose. Here's the purpose of this. So that, when they look on me. Who's talking? God is talking. He says, when these Israelites look on me. And then he says, here's who I'm talking about. On him whom they have pierced. They're going to look on the Lord Jesus Christ who is God in human flesh. He is Yahweh in human flesh. They're going to look upon him. They're going to see that he has been pierced and they're going to begin to mourn. They're look, look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Israel, looking upon their Lord, they see him as he returns. They begin to weep and mourn. They had pierced him. Now they mourn because they realize that was their Messiah. He's the one whom they pierced. To be pierced speaks of a shameful and violent death. Again, this must have been a shocker to, for them to think in Zechariah's time. What is this all about? To mourn is to strike the chest in heartfelt grief. To weep bitterly they're doing it. As one weeps over a firstborn. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're going to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. As the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. But then look at the last few verses. Verse 11 and following. On that day... The mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. What is that talking about? Well, that happens to be talking about when godly, beloved King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt in battle. And there was a time of great, great mourning. It's going to be like that. So verses 12 to 14, it says, The land shall mourn. Each family by itself, or literally each family alone, every person alone. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. 
their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Individually, alone, they're going to be mourning, weeping over their part in this. That term itself, themselves, etc., it's repeated 11 times. The personal, private, sincere nature of this repentance is spoken here. It's, from, it's individual. It's from the heart. It's from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, convicting them of their own sinfulness. It's going to happen to David's family, the royal line, and their wives apart. It's going to happen to the house of Nathan, a descendant of David. By the way, Zerubbabel at this time, of Zechariah, was of Nathan. So was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then says the house of Levi and their wives, that's the priestly line. Then the Shimeites, they were descendants of Levi. They were living at this time. They descended from Kohath, and they served alongside the priests. And then all the families that are left. And so it'll be fulfilled, Romans eleven twenty six, And then all Israel will be saved. Wow. All glory to God. Now look at the next verse, a preview for next week, verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Their salvation. Same way for us, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We're reminded of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to go beyond that and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what happens when we come to Christ. And this is, happens daily again when we confess our sins. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? You won't have to worry about the battle of Armageddon. Will we be there? Perhaps. I think so. I think we'll be returning with Jesus from heaven. Revelation 19. Be a part of the great cloud of witnesses coming with him. When out of the sword of his mouth, the destruction and complete end of this battle. It is coming. It's coming soon. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But we know that Jesus is coming and the judgment will be there. And then he's going to set up his kingdom. And oh, what a glorious time that's going to be. Prepare yourselves for that. Live every day in the light that he could come today for you. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Seek to share him with others. And may God's blessing be upon you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word today. What a blessing it is. It's your word. You spoke this. You proclaimed this. You said this is the truth.
and it will come to pass. Oh, Father, help us to be prepared by living for you each day so that we'll be ones who are coming back with you, not ones who will be suffering during that time. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.